Welcome to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast, where we are practicing the art of kindness and civil discourse and authenticity and storytelling. Our goal is to foster a healthy dialogue about race relations in our community. We seek common ground for common good and hope these conversations encourage you to build authentic relationships outside your race or comfort zone. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of the United Voice Oklahoma podcast. I am your host, Waylon Cubitt, and once again, C.C. Jones Davis is not with us, and I am so sad. She, once again, has not kicked me to the curb. She is just doing some self-care, and we uh, so appreciate that she's taking time to do that. We are in the house that Oklahoma County built. No. We are at the Boys and Girls Club, and this is a phenomenal new facility, and we're recording at the Boys and Girls Club. So I'm telling you, if you have not been down to visit the Boys and Girls Club, you must come down and see this new addition. It is the Taj Mahal of community centers for youth, and even the community are letting us use it. So uh, shout out to all the fine people and AJ uh, down at the Boys and Girls Club here. But this week on our podcast, we have a phenomenal new friend of mine, Dr. Andrea Benjamin. Hello, Doc. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. <laughs> Andrea is an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma in the Claire Looper Department of African and African American Studies. She is originally from North Carolina and has earned degrees from UC Davis and the University of Michigan before joining us here in the beloved Sooner State to teach at the University of Oklahoma. She's a political scientist who has focused some of her research specifically on race and politics as well as local elections, voting behaviors, and public opinion. We are super excited to have her here with us to dive into a discussion about race and the many ways it plays into the politics of our society today. Welcome, Dr. Benjamin. Thank you. I just want to go back and say I'm from Northern California, but you said North Carolina. But I, I did say North Carolina. I lived in North Carolina for almost seven years. My whole heart is in the Bull City. So shout out Durham. Shout out North Carolina. Okay. I can't read because it clearly says California okay. on my notes. I don't know. Well, UC Davis, maybe that's where I, my yeah. mind yep. happened there. It's All right. Okay. So you got to give us a little bit of idea. So before we were... Before you came to OU, you saved as before, but I think I'm going to have to do a little research. You have a pet, a uh -oh. cat, that has a very uh, familiar name. Yes. I cannot believe this, but you tell the story. Yes. So I adopted a cat, a little orange cat, in the summer of 2009. Orange of all He's things. He's orange, um, much like his namesake in <laughs> hair color. Um, and so I was thinking of names and thinking of names and... It was around the time that, you know, Blake Griffin was drafted. And so I thought it was funny. So I went home from work that day and I called the cat Blake Griffin and the cat looked at me. And so I felt like it was just meant to be. So he's Blake Griffin, the cat. Um, he has many adventures and um, he does have his own Instagram, his which own is Instagram page. at Blake Griffin, the cat on IG. And we keep <laughs> the content fresh and we keep it hilarious. So if you have a second, go check out his his feed. I think that it's pretty is, good. That is funny. Yeah. Does he know? Does he respond? Does he follow Blake Griffin the cat? The real Blake Griffin? Not yes. yet. But see, every day we are getting closer to the real Blake Griffin, knowing about Blake Griffin the cat, and then my life goals are complete. I'm done. All right. So let's it's, do this. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. You've heard it here, right yes. here on yes, United Voice definitely. Oklahoma. We're going to bring the followers of Blake Griffin the cat to the world of the real Blake Griffin. Yes. And everything is going to change. Yes. All right. Super excited. So listen, Doc. Can I call you Doc? I just like that. Sure. All right, Doc. So tell us a little bit about your history. Give us a little overview on who you are. I like We like to, to get that context and then briefly kind of bring us up to speed on and how you ended up uh, diving into making political science the thing for you to, to, to be an authority, the guru over, and how that led you to the University of Oklahoma. Sure. Actually, this is such a great question. I'm actually glad to sort of share this, not just here, but just whoever, everyone can hear it. So I'm the first one in my family to go to college. My dad was in the military um, and uh, maybe went to community college. 
Uh, my mom had some community college. And when I told them that I wanted to go to college, which is pretty, I'm pretty sure I read about college in a book. Right. <laughs> um, they said, okay, you know, but they didn't know anything about it. And so I can remember sort of just doing everything my friends were doing, all the leadership, all the AP, all the extracurriculars. And I can remember the fall of 1996, which is when I applied to college. Um, you know, my dad said to me, why, why can't you just go to community college? And I can remember crying, not that there's anything wrong with community college, but I, I said to him, I said, if I knew I was going to community college, I wouldn't have done any of this. This wow. is not required. Right. 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 And, um, you know, now in retrospect, I can look back as that he was scared, right? Because the letters hadn't come. And as soon as the letters came, oh, you couldn't tell my dad anything. He's out here telling all his friends at work. He's writing me notes. Um, so I got into most schools that I applied to, not my dream school, which was UCLA at the time. Shout out to everyone that went there. Right. Um, but I did get into UC San, San Diego and I wanted to go. And my dad told me, you're not going to school nine hours away from me. And when my UC Davis letter came, which Davis door to door was 26.2 miles from my house, a marathon away. Right. Uh, my dad worked swing shift and the, the big envelope still came. It's not, you didn't get it on the internet like you do now. The, the envelopes came and there was a note that says, congratulations, you're going to Davis in the fall. Wow. And so I went um, and I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. So boom, political science degree, definitely going to do that. Definitely going to law school. Definitely going to be the next Supreme Court justice. You couldn't tell me anything show up or go to orientation and meet someone who became a mentor to me, Dr. Patricia Turner, who's now a provost at UCLA. And she gives a spiel saying, oh, take intro to African-American studies, just check it out. And so my mind is blown because I'm like, oh my gosh, we there's a whole class you could take about black people? Sure, do that. By the end of the 10 weeks, I knew I was going to double major, right? So I so I set out on the path wow. to double major. It was just amazing. And we'll get into why, right? Because I yeah. think for the first time- I want to know the book that did it. I want to know the speech that did it. I want to know the class that did it. Yeah. What was the light bulb moment? I do want to know. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll definitely get to that. Um, I'm actually using the same textbook that Dr. Turner used now, but it's updated version okay. with my intro to African-American studies, okay. which it is my goal to convert some majors. <laughs> they, right. they know that. <laughs> right. um, so I set out to, to, to double major. And then I took a class that was like law school and I was like, oh no, not for me. So I knew I wasn't going to law school. Luckily, another professor took an interest in me. Um, and I should say, I mentioned to you, I'm the first one in my family to go to college. When yeah. I showed up there, I didn't even know how people became professors. It was just outside of my worldview to know, oh, you went to school, you wrote a dissertation, you have a PhD. N didn't know any of that. Didn't understand it. And so my, my other mentor, Dr. Stewart, just took me under his wing. I did McNair. I'm a McNair scholar. So you do research. They prepare you to go to grad school. But my dad died while I was in college. And uh, as senior year came, I couldn't get my life together to do applications. It just was too much for me. Um, so I took a break off. And I remember going to Dr. Stewart crying, obviously, because I'm always so, so sensitive. And I didn't want him to be disappointed in me. And he said, a year in your life is like a drop in a bucket. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked and I did some stuff, um, but then I applied to grad school and I didn't want to go to grad school in political science. Okay. I had, I applied to nine programs, six of which were in African and African-American studies, and I didn't get into any of them. Um, Is that right? There are so few programs, you know, we're, we're, we just became a major here at OU. Um, I think Carlos says only 16 programs have PhD programs associated with them. And so Dr. Very, Carlo, shout out to Dr. Carlos, Dr. Carlos Hill, Hill sorry, yeah. uh, my chair. And so I just didn't get in. But my mentor, Dr. Stewart, kept saying, apply to University of Michigan, apply to University of Michigan. And I said, oh, fine, I don't want to go to Michigan. So then I get into the number one program for race and politics in the country um, at the time. I, I, I still think we're the best. but And, that's, and that was in Michigan. Yeah, the University, number one. Yeah, for race and politics at that point. I mean, that. UCLA has given us a run for our money right now. Duke's trying. Um, so shout out to my colleagues and friends and everybody I know now who works at those institutions. But um, showed up to Michigan. Mind you, I'm a California girl. Had never been further east. As at, The furthest east I had been at that point was Kentucky. It's February. I, I show up. Day one, I call my mom and I saw I'm coming here because I knew I could succeed there. So there were so many students of color. There was faculty of color. My advisor, Vince, um, who's also from California, he wasn't there, but we talked on the phone. Um, shout out to Dr. Haynes Walton, who was there and became a mentor of mine. Um, you know, so so randomly, right? So I don't get into any African and African-American studies programs. Get into the University of Michigan. Shout out to Angelique and Gina and Tasha for bringing on admissions that year and seeing a, a little gem inside of my roughness, right? Um, and so I go there. And everyone knew that I kind of had wanted to be in an AFAM program. Well, not everyone. Some people knew that. 
So when the opportunity came to apply to the job here, it felt like fate because it really was full circle, everything I had wanted to do. It was an opportunity to uh, teach some of the classes that really changed me when I was an undergrad. And, you know, my poli-sci department experience had been great. I always taught race and politics. I was able to teach a urban um, immigration, urban class. That's really sort of what I do. Um, but for me right now to be teaching intro to AFAM, which is the class that converted me, I feel so lucky. And every day I just feel like I can't believe this is my job. Right. So it really is full circle. So I ended up here because I wanted the, I mean, they were searching for someone that did black politics, which I do. And so it was ability to teach what I wanted, but still pursue my research the way I wanted. And I felt like I just couldn't pass it up. So I, I did come, even though I had only been at my last job for a year and a half. Well, yeah. thank you for coming over to the University of Oklahoma. Yeah. And share, but you did say something in, in all of that, that you said a lot that I want to pick up on. But uh, when you landed at the university and you saw all of the teachers of color yeah. that you instantly knew that this was a place that you wanted to be at. And so talk to us a little bit what that what that might be like for students of color to see other authority figures and people in the classroom teaching that are people of color. Why is that so important? I mean, there's research that suggests it's important for everyone to have a, a teacher at some point in your career that's a person of color. Um, for me personally, it's never lost on me. Almost every semester that I've taught, and I've been in the classroom since the fall of 2011, um, you're my first black professor. You're my black, first black professor that's a woman. And that's heavy to me, right? You because get that response from students? From students. They'll tell me, oh my gosh, this is the first time. Um, and so I, I take that responsibility really seriously, and my students know that, Um but but one thing that I try to tell my students, and particularly here since I've been at OU, because these are the this is the the most diverse classes I've ever taught. And I, I feel like I've taught diverse classes before in the sense of, you know, when I was at UNC, you know, mix of black, white, Latinx, Asian. When I was at Missouri, same thing. Um, but here in particular, what I try to tell my students is it's not lost on me that that you have a lot of expectations of me, but I want you to know that I, do, I don't hold any stereotypes about you. I believe you're here because you can succeed. We're all going to learn from each other. Here, here, my expectations are going to be high, but when you meet them, you're going to be so proud of yourself. Um, I'm going to share things with you you've never learned before, but I'm going to learn from you too. And so it really is important. And I know a lot of faculty don't love teaching. I'm not one of them. I love teaching. Um, I love the students. It's the only reason why I'm still in academia, right? Because what I study, I could probably make a lot more money helping people run for office. Yeah. Hello. Um, hello. Yeah. Somebody's listen. running for office. Yeah, that you someone know. is running right. for office, right? <laughs> um, and 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 there is a part of me, and I do those things in my free time. I, I you know I work on engagement. I work on registration. Th those things are important to me. But the students, nothing can for me right now. Nothing can replace what they give me um, and their optimism, and that they're the future and the ability to to share things with them that they might not know about and to watch them grow and develop. There's nothing else like that for me. So. I'm going to stay in the classroom until till I just can't. Why? Why? So you mentioned you have a lot of white students, or diverse students, but you have white students. Why would they take your class? Why do they sign up for that? What are I, they getting out of it? I think that just like everyone else, one, they just want to know. But I will say this. The conversations that we have in my classroom are the conversation that everyone wants to have, but they don't know how. Mm. Right. So whether they don't feel like they have the right knowledge, well, I can help with that. We're going to do the readings. And in class, sometimes it's challenging, but I tell my students on the first day, I know you have opinions. I'm not here to change them. But the best way for us to learn from each other in this in this experience is if we stick to the facts. That's what do the readings say? What do the data say? I let them lead discussion. You can send what you care about, what's important to you, to your peers. We will all read it. But I think when we sort of keep it to that uh, analytical, critical level, uh, it's less likely to hurt feelings. It's less likely to have miscommunications. And sure, there are still things that we learn. Um, I do want us to be on the same page about language. If you tell me your name is Jim and I keep calling you Bob, you don't like that. Right. So let's be on the same language with uh, the same page with our language. Um, but then we're going to do it. We're going to talk about why why are groups doing this? What did the data say? Why 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 is this instance happening? You know why why are all the candidates of color no longer running for president? What happened? It was the most diverse run ever. Does not anymore. What happened? And we're going to talk about those things. Um, and sometimes we delve into religion. Sometimes we delve into LGBTQIA stuff, uh, gender, right? So 
it's everything you want to talk about with a like an experienced facilitator, right? Right. And so you can learn. So I think any student, um, you know, I've had Asian American students tell me this is the first time I've ever heard about my own group on this university campus because I'll include if I have the data, we can talk. If it's in there. It's on the syllabus, right? So. Um, again, I feel so lucky. I can't believe that this is my job, that I get to do this and talk to all these people about these great things, right? So I really, I, I do, I take it very seriously. It's really important to me, but I think people want to have these conversations and they don't know where to do it. Right. So on your profile it, on the OU website, it says students will realize that there are a lot of things we don't talk about in regards to African-American culture. What are some of those things we don't talk about, uh, that, that you are aiming to teach students that come into your class? What are some of those things? Sure. So I think most students, when they finish high school, and that's across the country, unless they've had some sort of dedicated class, can tell me three or four things about black people. Yep. Talk about enslavement. They might say the end of, of slavery. So they might talk to me about Abraham Lincoln. If they're sort of astute, they might say something about Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass. Uh, tell me about Martin Luther King. You might hit me with a little bit of Rosa Parks. That might be the end of it, civil rights movement. And now in more recent times, you'll tell me Barack Hussein Obama. Okay. Okay. And then that's it. That's what you know. But between all of those things are all these other great people. And so um, understanding that, sure, like I respect Frederick Douglass. I respect Pat Turner, David Walker. We might talk about Ida B. Wells, right? Um Anna Julia Cooper, right? So what are women doing to advance our movement, to bring black people to equality? And what I tell my students is the quest in America for African-Americans is equality. That is what we have been working towards this whole time. And so how do we meet people along the way that even if they don't agree on the path, everybody wants black equality. Everybody wants black greatness, um, uplift, right? We talk about uplift in our in our group, right? So I want them to fill in those gaps, right? What, what happens between the end of slavery and, and Martin Luther King, right? There's a lot that happens in there, right? We move, we do the great migration, we um, agitate for jobs. Uh, we realize the South is tough, the North is tough, right? The West is tough, it's tough. Um, the Great Depression hits, we're the first ones fired. We don't have jobs, it's tough times, right? Um, and then we're gonna move into, we're, we're, then we're gonna agitate, we're gonna make demands, right? And we're gonna follow Martin, but, but Martin had a lot of women working with him to help him, we we're gonna learn about them. As we move forward, right, we're going to think about the movements for, for our own independence, right? So we're going to talk, prior to this, we're going to talk about Marcus Garvey. We're going to talk about Booker T. Washington and Du Bois. What, what's their argument? We'll think about which path have we actually taken? Who are we more like today? What would they say if they were here? Um, we're going to talk about the Nation of Islam, right? We're going to talk about Malcolm X, who to me is one of the greatest um, minds of our time, right? And when I think about him, um, I'm humbled that he existed. And it's one of the books, I had a student come to me last semester and I have a bunch of books in my office. And he said, he stood in front of my books and he said, give me something that will inspire me, change me. Yes. And I handed him the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I said, you can keep it. I'll buy a new one. Because I've read that book three times and every time what struck me is what a lesson in adaptability, right? What can we do when we have information? Right, because right. right. I mean that, and then to, that a, to me is the greatest. There was a change in him, right? That people don't ever talk about. But that's the most important thing, and yeah, so I, I feel like is. if I have a son, ooh, when he turns fourteen, we reading it together <laughs> once a year. Junior, get on the books, right? right. So I, I just think that there's just so much for us, and even as we move forward, right? Um, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, our department honored Dr. Anita Hill. Yes. Right. What. We need to, my students don't even know who she is. I almost passed out last month when I told them that I met her and they were like, who's that? So who is she, that? she's on the syllabus, so they will know. So just a keynote speaker for right. you. Yeah, right. Right. Just, you know, just uh, the one of the most courageous women that we know right. of our time. And she's still alive and we can meet her. Right. So I just think that for me, and I think that this is really the heart of, of your question is I think we live in a time where we have all the information that we need and we still don't have it. We right. don't access it. We don't access it, right. Right. It's a better way to put it. it. Yes, thank you. We don't access it, right? And so how can we do that? But also, um, we also live in a time where because images are coming at us, information is coming at us so much, it's easy to become stereotypes. And we're more than stereotypes. I think that's really the m main thing, right, is that we are not just, um, we are not just enslaved people, right, that we're more than that. We are not just uh, boycotters. Right, who 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 yep. didn't take the bus? Yeah. Um, we're not just even Barack Hussein Obama, which who is someone who I really respect. Um, we're more than those things, right? And so, how do I get my students to know 
um, beyond the stereotypes, the right? We're more than athletes, right? The complexity of the individual right. people right. that make up people of color. Right. And right. so to, to, to sort of have this, right, because I think for me, at least when I talk to students, sometimes we think, oh, blackness is music and entertainment. It's sport. That's, that's, that's hard. That's hard for me to hear because I think I'm black excellence every day. Right. Right. No one's, oh, black people are all professors. Right. I get people all the time say, I can't believe you're a professor. You couldn't be one. Right. And so, again, just challenging those stereotypes. And I want them to leave knowing, all the students to leave knowing, uh, for me at least, the, contribution that's, the contributions that we've made to this country and the, the fact that we're still standing. I'm so proud it's to rich. be black. It's, it's rich. so rich. It's so we're rich. We're still here. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Right. Now, here, you said this now, and I need help. We all need help with this one thing. I believe that uh, the conversation about race relations, the the value that African Americans bring to uh, to this country, having a conversation about American history, not separating it from Black history, and all of this kind of stuff is is very good. And so you're saying that in your class, and I hear you uh, describing that you are facilitating this discussion on a regular basis. How do we have this conversation well? When people uh, listen to this podcast and they're going to work and they're going to walk in and uh, there's either there's a TV and it's either on CNN or it's either on Fox. And some issue is going to come up that's going to drive people in this office from one side of the room to the other side of the room. But I believe there's a middle part of the room that we're giving up. You have mastered the idea of using data and facts to be able to have a conversation for people that have ran to the opposite sides of the room. Help us find the middle. That's really hard. Okay. Um, So, of course, I think I'm objective. Um, I don't know that everyone will agree with that, so I (laughs) accept that critique. Um, I think we do live in a time where both sides of these, you know, if we think about both people being pushed to both sides – they do think they have the facts, right? And that's already the first problem. Right. Right, because I think if we really want to have a conversation, then the the sort of the mindset or the the facing needs to be, what can I learn from this situation, right? And I don't I don't know. I mean, so one thing is sometimes people say, oh, Andrew, you don't, you don't really post that much about politics, right? So I have a very political uh, space that I navigate. I, I use my Twitter that my students can access. I share information. Um, but like if you were to look at my Facebook, it's mostly just – pictures of food and drinks that I'm eating in Oklahoma City. People say, why don't you do that? And I say, why? I talk about politics typically when I'm at work and it's a job to me and I'm an expert in that. But I don't go to anyone else's job and start commenting and telling them, oh, you need to do this better, you need to do that better, right? And so politics becomes this very strange thing where I I will engage with it, but only if we agree to some ground rules. What are the ground rules? Um, that we're going to be open-minded, that we're going to be critical not of um, people but ideas and, and information. So where did it come from? right? So if I produce a survey to you and I say, oh, Waylon, this is 25% of black people said X, your first question shouldn't be that's wrong or how, how – where did this data come from? What's the sample? How many people said no? How many people agreed to the survey? Is this all old people? Is this all young people? This is all people from California, right? Where is the information coming from? So we can all agree that we think it's valuable, right? Because if I tell you, well, oh, it's just me calling my friends, mm, that's not valuable not data. Valid. That's not, not valid. valid. That's right. not, it's not accurate, right? We, we can't generalize based on that. I can say, oh, my friend said, and you can say, oh, that's just your friend's experience, right? So we kind of have to agree that we're going to be critical of, of ideas um, and not people, I guess. And I, I feel like I'm saying that and I'm like, I'm not, it sounds too high-minded, but- I think that's sort of where we lose it, right? That you're taking it so personally that someone doesn't agree with you. Well, no one has to agree with you. And no hope. And like I said, I don't try to change anyone's mind. I, I'm not stupid enough to do that. I believe that people sort of have their preferences and, and we can all search and find information to reinforce those preferences. Right. But until we're willing to have a conversation, I say, well, what, why, do I, why do I believe that? Oh, it's based in my experience. Well, is your experience unique or is it generalizable? Well, do you think everyone who's had your experience feels the same way? Maybe not. Um, and I do credit my parents for that, right? So I told you my dad was in the military, so right. he was pretty conservative. Um, and the way that we were raised was, you know, my mom, much less so, much more to the liberal side. Um, and so I feel like in my household, it wasn't really one way or the other when it came to some of those conversations. And I can remember 
I told my students this yesterday. I tried to read like Karl Marx's book or whatever about communism, Communist Manifesto. And my dad was like, why would this book be at my house? And I got in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's not that he was really trying to censor me. It's just for him, that's not his way of thinking. And so I can sort of understand that given the life that he lived, given the the ranks that he rose through in the military at a time when it was really hard for a black man to do those things. He just has a particular worldview. So I think, again, just can we agree on what facts are, what information is, where the information come from? Can we talk respectfully? And I know one thing that I really strongly don't do is I don't debate um, policies that are really about people, right? So to explain that. Um, Aren't all the policies about people? But but that's fair. But I mean, so I'm not going to have a conversation with you about whether or not, or I'm going to debate with you about whether or not um, the way kids are being held in cages because their parents broke the law. That's not a debate to me. Okay. <laughs> this is not something to debate. Okay. That's real people's lives. Yeah. Regardless I'm of whether or not you are, are hardcore, um, everyone needs to follow the law, which I can totally get behind, or you are hardcore, open the borders, Right. I'm not going to debate with you about, well, what about those? They're just, well, that's what they get. I'm not going to do that, right? Because for me, as someone who I don't want to dehumanize other people, I have some serious challenges in my own self about letting that happen, something like that happening. That for me regardless is Regardless of what the, yeah. Regardless of the rationale, there uh -huh. has to be a better way to manage this, right? And aside from those two poles of I do not it's illegal all the way. You can't break the law to open up the open up the border. Let's see what happens. Those are real people. And I don't think I'm going to get you to come together. So my main thing is like, okay, well, is this how I wouldn't want this to happen to my kids. I wouldn't want to be on a trip somewhere and have something terrible happen. And I end up and then my kids are in a cage. Right. Right. So I just can't. So when I say that, I mean, I'm, I'm but just, you have to agree that that's a fact, first of all. Right. Because I've been in those conversations or tried to have that conversation and they go, that's just what they're telling. They're not in cages. They're not being held that way. That's just what they're being told. And I'm like, well, if we can't even agree that that's a fact, then we can't. We got to stop the conversation. Right. Cause because if I think it is from. a fact and right. you think it's not a fact, then we're really fighting for nothing. Or right. arguing for nothing. Yeah. No, we're, we're having a discussion that's going to lead to a fight because right. there we go. And so in that sense, to me, I just won't engage with that. Right. Yep. And it's not that I think I know better, but I know in this moment, I'm not going to change my mind. Now, maybe if we're talking about local politics, right, we might think about, well, um, do we need sidewalks in this area? Oh, I'll have a debate with you all day mm -hmm. because the sidewalk going there or not, it does affect people's lives, right? Maybe it's better access to the bus, maybe lighting at the bus stop. Those are real things, but that's not, that's not harming someone's physical being. Um, and we're just debating it like it's, oh, which one's better deep dish or flat or, um, <laughs> thin crust. Right. Right. Like, and I think people want to have these debates. And to me, I'm just not going to have those debates about policies in that way because those are real people. And so unless we're both experts, I don't even think I'm an expert in that. Unless we're both experts and we're really coming to the to the discussion to offer solutions. If you just want to argue with me about whether or not immigration should be legal or not, I'm not going to I don't want to have that discussion. That's not something for me. It's that's too up for debate. nuanced. Right? It's too it's nuanced. And it's also just it's unlikely that either one of us are going to change our mind. Right. So I'm not just going to sit here and argue. How do you have this? Argue. How do you how do you address uh, for me in law enforcement? We have said or people have come to me and said, you know, if people just didn't break the law, then we wouldn't have so many of those type of people in prison. They're in prison because they break the law. And then when I, it, I try to go, okay, I, yes, because I enforce the law. And yes, there are consequences for breaking the law. But we've never, ever, ever, ever seemed to ask the justice in the law and where the law comes from. So in your class, do you get to go backwards and have the, the, the students dissect the law in and of itself? This is where I'm going. This is where I'm going. Is... Uh, Law enforcement has always been the um, the strong arm, or should I say, they have been the enforcers of what we now look back and say oh, that was an unjust law. But at the time they were enforcing it, it appeared to be justice, right? Okay, and so now here we are with this this system filled on the backs of in what we know is uh, unjust laws. But we still look at it as criminality when people break laws. Are we asking people now, students, are you asking your students to look critically at the law now for its justice or lack thereof? 
Yes. I mean, it's, it's definitely something that we talk about. I'm trying to think of, in the, not in the, the class I'm teaching right now. I don't know quite when we'll get there. But it's not I an intro level thing, you mean? It's, right. it's not that. It's just we're doing so many. But it could come in. Right. It, pro- it probably will come in. Like There's just ways in which some things come in. But I think you've made a really good point, right? Which is that justice or this sense of right or wrong, right? We we uh, Slavery was legal. I don't know that. I mean, I guess there are some people who probably wish we could go back to the system, um, but we we would be remi- we would not let that happen. Today, we wouldn't happen, think. right? We, we right. wouldn't happen today, right? So I think you're right, right? That the context does matter, and what was perceived as very black and white, right and wrong in a p- particular time period, we can move forward and say, oh, well, we would never do that, right? And so I think for me, my number one thing when it comes to thinking about policing. Um, the police force one, as my students know, every time we talk about this, I'm like, I'm so thankful that people are willing to do that job. It's not for me, um, but I'm thankful. Um, but in any situation, you know, there are ways in which we can all do our jobs better, or we can think about what's the context, right? So I'm not saying, oh, police officers shouldn't follow the law. That's then they're not doing their job. Right. Got to do that. But what can we do as a society or as a, a community to think about, well, what does the law look like here? Right. And so one of the things, um, I guess maybe right is that uh, since I've lived here not very long, we I know that bail reform is a big deal yeah. here, and it's something that people are talking about. And so again, to your point, I'm not I'm not here to say, oh, you didn't break the law. You broke the law. You did break the law, or or or, or it appears that way, right? Because we haven't or, even gone to trial yet, especially right, like right. in the in the county, um, sort of in the 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 localized context, right? Do I think that you should pay fees? Because you already can't pay the fees to get yourself out of there? No, I think that that's problematic. And I think that's just creating a system where we're just going to keep... Now you're just a criminal because you didn't pay your fees for a crime you may or may not have been committed of and you might be innocent of. We haven't even gone to trial yet. We don't even know. But now you are a criminal because you owe these fees. And so I have, I have some serious moral concerns about that, right? So what's an alternative? What what might we do, right? So think trying to work through those solutions. But even still, even if we were to put something up and the legislature were to say, no, we're not going to do that, then yeah, I, I believe in the law, but I still want to be engaged with the community to say, okay, can we get a community bail fund so that you don't have to, innocent or not, maybe you didn't do those things. I don't want you to sit there now because you owe money on those things. Right. Right. So I, so those are the things that I, I think matter to me in a way that's deeper than um, sort of just like debates about policy is just these are people, right? right. And we know from uh, from other jurisdictions, uh, Ferguson, Missouri being probably the best one, these entities are generating a lot of revenue on fees. And I have some serious concerns about that, right? Um, and especially in the context of Ferguson and the whole St. Louis area, uh, those small towns exist be- precisely because they didn't want to pay tax into the city. Hundreds mm-hmm. of hundred years ago, right? Those little towns. Those little right. towns, because right. they. Why would we give our money? That's just money to black people. My tax are not going to that, right? And we have pockets of that here. Okay. Right. So when community, so I just I, I have some serious concerns, but but no, I don't. Right. But so yes, I think contextually things change, and so maybe in a couple years, that won't be the law, right? And so I know even there's ballot initiatives right now about what we're doing with bail, so that would change things. But you're asking students. To think critically so they can recognize it, right. uh, recognize it before it becomes or as it is becoming a problem. Right. They can think critically of it and not just automatically assume that because it is a law right. or because it is a common practice that it is just. Right. And I think that's really the right word. Like what's just? Yeah. That's the that's the, the right. theme of the day, right? Right. Just. Yeah, because what's just, right? Like there are rules, right? And then there are sort of, again, sort of like the ways we want to treat people or sort of the way we, we want things to be. Um, and I think justice and and sort of this morality, those things are constantly in flux, um, right? Because you think about it, I mean, look at all these states legalizing marijuana. That used to be illegal. Alcohol was illegal for a long time, right? So those things can change. And then we change the way we respond to them. And it changes the policy, right? So right. then now police officers do not arrest you for, for drinking. Right. I mean, well, and so old police officers like me, that's like blowing our mind. It's like, okay, that's not... That's not right. So I can see how yeah. when you make changes in policy and rules, how it, it resistance might might hit. Yeah. Because you're just not you're just not used to it. You're not used to it. And you're I, not used I to it. Totally, right? totally right. understand. I mean, just like with anything, um, you know, my book, uh, the term Latinos in there. Let's so now, go. Let's talk about this book. That okay. was my very next question. Oh, okay, so set good. this book up. Yeah, set yeah. this book up. Okay. Because uh, you've written a book. Uh, that explains a little bit about blacks and Latinos and how they rely on endorsements 
from co-ethnic leaders when casting their ballots. Sure. This is blowing my mind. Just yes. think about this. So this is controversial, maybe? You're about to say something controversial. I don't think it's controversial. You don't? Okay. Well, okay, I will say this. It is kind of. So the one thing I always ask people, my students, whoever's reading the book to take away is that I'm not making a claim that Blacks and Latinx community members use endorsements for everything. That makes them sound not very bright. And that's definitely not what I'm saying. I think there's a situation under which you can be really savvy and a set of endorsements can tell you everything you need to know while you cast your ballot. Now, there are some caveats there. Uh, you know, in my book, I, I run some experiments. We do social science experiments. So different people, it's random assignment. Different people read different things. And I've manipulated those things. So you might read an article about two white candidates. That's it. And at the end, I'll ask you, who do you want to vote for? And I'll compare that to someone else who got randomly assigned to a treatment where maybe a black organization endorsed one of those candidates. And if it turns out that on par with random assignment, I didn't know anything about you, anyone else, People who read about the endorsement are more likely to pick that candidate. We might compare and say no endorsement to endorsement. If you receive the endorsement, you're, you're more likely to pick that candidate, right? So we do this. Okay. Yeah. So we do this in a localized setting, and then I did it in a national setting. For Blacks and Latinx community members, an endorsement alone for a white candidate is not enough. Just us endorsing Joe Biden right now, that's not enough. Joe Biden has to be talking about the issues in the right way, our issues, racial and ethnic issues. Other than that, we're not listening now. For Blacks, if a Latinx community member receives a Black endorsement, that's all he needs. Okay, I, I got confused. Okay. La Latino candidate yep. gets an endorsement from a Black leader or a Black community. What yep, is black it? organization. From a Black organization that seals the deal for him. Yep, Blacks will more likely to, to no. say, I want to vote for that person. Blacks will vote for the Latino. Yep, but just a white candidate getting that same endorsement from the same organization, no issues, no difference. Pick so candidate one the, or same two, the same group, the same yep. black organization endorses a white candidate and it doesn't move the needle. Nope. Okay, explain it. I need to know. It's just the issues, right? So it's something about the way we, we think about who can represent us. So that candidate has to speak directly to the people in order for that endorsement to have any weight. Right. So for blacks, if a white candidate receives a black endorsement in the context of racialized issues, they will pick that candidate, the white candidate. But the Latino candidate doesn't need the issues. And what we know about racialized campaigns is there can be a lot of blowback. It can be a lot of backlash. So you don't want to make a campaign racialized so because it'll, are, that will mobilize you are, moderates. You are in the moment right now, right? Because yeah. I think just this morning yep. I'm watching this the Bloomberg Yep, I just wrote, a, I wrote, I wrote something and I'm waiting for the Washington Post to edit it. And hopefully this is about to go. By you are time. so right yeah. on time yeah. because he has... Um, he has said, no, there was this whole stop and frisk thing. Yep. Let's, let's, that was big and it was bad and it was ugly and it was public. Yep. And now it's back. It's back. But, because what you do comes back. Yeah. Yeah. In politics, right? You can't erase it. Right. Can't, can't erase it. Can't get away from it. But he is moving on. He is advancing anyway. He has what it looks like on his all of his media stuff. It looks like he has an endorsement from Barack Obama. He makes it look like he, that. He, now, he makes it yes. look like that. Yes. And that's a problem. I mean, right. So the, the endorsements that, that have come out more more recently, which I wrote this piece about, which God willing, by the time this episode airs, it will be out be because out. I'm anxious about it. But um, for, for black mayors, particularly, that's sort of been the big thing, right, is that as a former mayor, right, I'll, 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 D.C.'s mayor, San Francisco, Houston, Stockton, California, which if you've been following, Stockton is at the forefront of doing a lot of really cool things. They're doing the private... Um, experiment where they give people money and the oh, first that's right, right the, the random assignment of money um i can't think of the correct term for it but um that that what they found in their first study is that that money has just gone back into the economy and they didn't so put anything good. on it they just said nope. here's the money yep, here's six hundred dollars good luck yep. and so we'll see what mayor tubbs has mm -hmm. right he's touting that right so Every endorsement has come with a disclaimer. Um, I want to make a disclaimer that it is true that Bloomberg Incorporated has given me trillions of dollars right but for a black mayor right um there's a theory in political science called the hollow prize. And what it is is that by the time blacks are elected to mayor in a city, the city's already on an economic downturn. It's already challenges. And so they're left with this thing called a hollow prize because, of course, we're excited. We elected our first black mayor. And we look around and we're like, ooh, what's going to happen? And the greatest, most recent example of that is Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago. Rahm Emanuel left that city in a hot mess. There are the pensions, the police stuff, right? And now we're like looking at her. She, she, we expect her to fix it. 
how? She only has four years and she's still just the mayor. Right. right? So it's this challenge, right? So to my mind, I think that question is at one of these three questions, which is what do the endorsement mean to the voters? And my book says, well, they can matter, but I don't think they matter all the time because, again, I, I don't think people are ignorant, but I think a cue from someone that you trust can provide you with the information you need. I don't have to do all my research. You've done it for me. And that, to me, is no different than partisanship. If you show up and you vote D or R because you've always voted D or R, you're not any different than a black person looking to another black person, an organization, maybe a leader. Oh, what should we be doing here? Right? I think that's rational and that is an effective use of time. But what do the endorsement mean to the voters? It could be, could be something. What do the endorsements mean to the candidate? I'm going to argue that endorsements mean something to candidates because every time you have one, you tell everyone. You never keep it a secret. I can only think of one example in my book where someone in New York got an endorsement from this person who people thought was a little sketchy. That's the only time I've ever seen a candidate, 25 elections over a 30-year period, that people didn't want to talk about an endorsement. Every other endorsement you're putting on your website, you take a photo, you're sharing it. These days you're tweeting it, your IG, your Facebook. And right? it don't matter? It, no, I'm saying to you, no, it can. It, it, it can. I think it can. And that's that's the operative word is that it can. But I'm not going to suggest it always does. Right. Because here's the thing. We don't actually know. It, an endorsement from me might bring you one vote, mine. An endorsement from an organization <laughs> might bring you a thousand votes, all their members. An endorsement from Barack Obama might win you an election. And I think that's how Ron won in 2015 in Chicago. Okay. Right? Because Chuy Garcia had worked really hard um, to, 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 to raise. He was on this 100 black endorsements kick. But as soon as Brock weighed in for his former, right, for his friend Rom, black people voted for him. And I'm not saying they did it cause it's not causal. I don't have that type of data, but it right. moved with it. Even though Chewy Garcia had worked really hard to build this black brown situation, he just couldn't get over the hump because Barack Obama's that the most famous. He's the first black. He's from Chicago. Of course, his endorsement matters in Chicago. Mm. Any candidate would want it. Any candidate would want it today from these presidential things, right? So what are the voter what does the endorsement mean to the voters? What does it mean to the candidate? But what does it mean to the endorser? And that's where I think these black mayors are trying to be strategic. Because it could be uh you think a mayor can be a, a good they, they have good knowledge of governance. And you're a mayor. And so you think all we need is a, a mayor in the president's office and we can fix some of this stuff. It's not lost on me that federal funding for cities has decreased a lot over time. Maybe you think putting a former mayor in the president's office, we're going to get some money back. Ah. Uh, could be that you understand the hollow prize and you're thinking, if Bloomberg can help my city, my voters will be pleased with me. So you're going to put it on the line. Alternatively, maybe not so altruistically, you might hope for an appointment in the cabinet. I don't know. Yep. But yep. The, to me, the main, the main question and what, I, and what I wrote for the Washington Post for the monkey cage is, why are we only talking about Bloomberg's black endorsements? Elizabeth Warren has gotten endorsements from black women. Um, Ron, I think, is that this huge organization. And my data say organizations do better than individuals. Why aren't we talking about that for her? Wow. Right? P Pete Buttigieg wants black people to vote for him so bad. They are not. What does that mean? Right? So who could, who could, who could pull black people over the hurdle for him? I don't know. I don't know that he's talking about the issues in the right way. I think Elizabeth San um, Elizabeth Warren is. I think Bernie Sanders is. So right. So other candidates have black endorsements. Why do we care so much that Bloomberg has them? Let's let's get off that narrative. That's free advertisement for him that he doesn't need. Okay. Right. And so why are we only talking about his black endorsements? Everyone has black endorsements, right? Biden has. It's some. not. It's it's the it's the black endorsement, not necessarily the color. I'm thinking, but it's the who of color that is endorsing. That's. That's my thought. But of course, I have no data. Yeah. I'm just going, I don't care if he has black endorsements. Like, I could care less that Steve Harvey is endorsing whoever. Right. He's a comedian to me. Right. But like I said, if, if uh, uh, what's her name? Susan Rice. Yeah. If she endorsed somebody, that carries some weight with me. Right. Right. Be because, because of who she is. Right. So, so you're savvy, though. Oh, am I? Right, okay. because, right, because for you, that's an important person. So I'll tell you this. So in the book, um, I had a bunch of, you know, I have this sort of data that I collected the hard way for my dissertation. And one of the ways I try to generalize it or make it bigger is we collected some data in L.A. And do you have any guess on who whose endorsement can really move black voters in Los Angeles, especially for local elections? Well, the that governor, what's his name? Oh, gosh. Nope. Nope. No, nope. I don't even know his name, but nope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of the governor because of uh I just did a, I just did some some follow up on a lot of YouTube. I watched a lot of video of this governor from 
California because he stopped the death penalty, and I was really interested oh, yeah, in the death Jerry penalty Brown. and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, so, but Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson. When Magic Johnson weighs in in local politics in Los Angeles, and see, this is this is part of how my book came about. I read a bunch of, I knew I wanted to study Black and Latino coalitions in local elections. Um, I, 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 it was 2007, 2008. I start reading a bunch of newspaper coverage, and I thought I would go there and find a bunch of candidates saying, "I'm black. I'm going to run with the Black Latino Coalition." Let's win. Or I'm Latino. I'm going to run the Black Latino Coalition. Let's win. And I read about 600 newspaper articles, and that term Black Latino Coalition only was mentioned three times. Uh, that's not a dissertation-making number. Okay? Right, right, right. But because I read all those newspaper articles, I started watching. Oh, so in this year, Magic Johnson endorsed Bob. Bob got a lot of black votes. But see, the next time, Magic didn't like Bob. He got in, so he endorsed Joe. Oh, Joe got a lot of black votes, but of course it's not causal, and it's not just Magic Johnson. There are other people in Los Angeles, like Maxine Waters, can move can move voters in, in L.A. Right. Right. So then I designed this the experiment. That's where the experimental design came from because I noticed it in L.A. I noticed it in Chicago. I noticed it in Houston. I noticed it in New York that these candidates for every election endorsements are moving, votes are moving too. But you can't prove it. So you have to do the survey experiment to try to get to the causal mechanism. Like what's moving people, right? So you make a clean design. Endorsement, no endorsement. Well, does the race of the candidate matter? Make them white, make them black. The only thing you change is their name. The, you know, the issue. Issue there, issue not there, right? And then you can run that experiment. And again, if to the extent that you think it's your treatment, the, because you randomly assigned, because you don't know anything about them, and because you've been clean in your design, any difference in preference, you want to attribute it to the piece of information that they were given that someone else wasn't, no. right? And so that's what you do, right? So again, yeah, Susan Rice might be an important person for you, but for the next person, Steve Harvey might actually provide them information. And again, I think it's, it's I, don't, I don't view it as ignorance. I view it as savvy. Savvy. Because unless you have all the time in the world to read about every candidate and in a local context, that information can be harder to find. Do you have time to go to every forum? If you didn't, then maybe you're looking around. What's the Sierra Club talking about? Right. What's the local... You're trusting other you're people trusting to other do the hard work. Because they think they've done it. And so Durham comes back up because Durham is an endorsement town. And so the book I'm working on now, most of the data come from Durham. Although there's big picture data that includes Oklahoma City on the front end and the back end, right? Because no one apparently wants to read a book only about Durham. I would, but anyway. Right. <laughs> but the thing about Durham is that Durham is a strong endorsement town. And so there's these three, four, three packs... And different organizations, but they offer endorsements. And I said, oh my goodness, I can't believe I've written this other book about endorsements. And now I live in this place where they matter. So I just start doing research. So we filled an exit poll. Turns out voters are very aware of the endorsements. And they're, they're racialized, right? So whites are sort of moving with this one organization and blacks are moving with this other organization. It's a black organization. It's historical. Um, and they're knowledgeable, right? So they're right. They can identify, oh, Waylon got endorsed by Bob. I know that. I'm accurate. Not, I think he did. Maybe he did. I know it, right? Uh -huh. And I also voted for Waylon, right? So, right, that these things are moving together. Again, it's not causal. It's just things moving together, right? So I think in the local context, and now mind you, in these elections, there's no partisanship. So I don't have the joys of DNR next to the name in local politics, right? Your election will be partisan. That might help you, might my, hurt you. My election for Oklahoma County Sheriff you're speaking of. Correct. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about it here. We can talk about okay, it. Okay. Yeah. We'll get to it. But right. <laughs> right. So you have that benefit because, and it goes both ways, right? Because for Democrats, that's great for them and that's great for you. But when Republicans see it, you're going to have to work for that one. Oh, okay. Right. And so, but, but it's a similar thing, right? That to the extent that I like the organization, their information, I, oh, you vetted them. I know you did your, let me follow you. But if I don't like your organization, bet, now I know who not to vote for, right? So the endorsements can go both ways in that sense, right? In the same way that partisanship can go both ways, right? Because I think for most, my sense of, of politics here is Democrats are probably going to vote for you. So give me, give me, give me this final thing. I need two things on this same subject. What for, I mean, just the bottom line, a black candidate needs to go after endorsements, yes or no. I think it can help. I don't want to say yes or no. Yeah, I know. Because, I, because I, know I wanted to box you in. I know, but I just don't want to because I think it just it really depends on the voter's relation. And again, in a city, so if I'm in Houston and I love the mayor of Houston and I'm black, or not even, if I just love the mayor of Houston, him endorsing Bloomberg might be the validation I, I'm going to vote for him. 
if I don't like the mayor of Houston, now I know who not to vote for. Or if I'm a really informed voter, I wasn't going to listen to that endorsement anyways. I was doing my own research. Okay, maybe I do this. Maybe I know you can't. I'm trying another way. I'm doing the very journalistic thing of asking the same question in a different way. Okay. All right. So uh, I'm coming to you for political help. Mm-hmm. I'm a white guy. Yep. Are you advising me to go to the African-American churches? Are you advising me to go to uh, these other traditional places where uh, people of color and influence lead? Are you advising me to go there? Are you going, if they come along, take them. If not, leave them. I think I would advise you to have an ear of listening, right? And by that, I mean, it's not good to just show up to the community and get a few pats on your back. You don't have anything to say. You haven't done anything for the community. That's really inauthentic. And I think voters pick up on that really quickly. Um, So to me, if you were a white candidate and you wanted to win over black or Latinx voters, Spend time in those communities. Listen to head of announcement. Yes, uh, listen to what those communities want. Talk to them in authentic ways. Please don't come to Latinx. You want to drop your bad Spanish? Just don't disrespect people. That's rude. The same thing with black people. It's no need to show up. And next thing you think you have hip hop jams and you know whatever. That's disrespectful. Be authentic. If through that authenticity of listening, you learn something about a policy that might help that group, by all means show me and tell me how you're going to do something for me, right? So in a local context, that might look like, oh, none of our city documents are available in in Spanish. If you elect me, I'm going to work on the proper translation so that when your community comes to the city council, the documents you need, you have them. That's authentic. That's not that's not trying to play to them. You're not on the Panda Express, right? You're 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 really doing something. The same thing with black people. Find out what our issues are. Um, you want to come. You want to come and be be the mayor. Okay. Have you met with the community? How do they feel about policing? Have you met with the police department? What's their what What's the relationship there? What can you offer that actually would say, as a black person in this city, you being mayor, I feel safer here. I feel like we've made progress on that. Probably doing those things, you'll garner some good endorsements. And when they give that endorsement of you, they'll be able to talk about this person is going to bring this to our community. So now you have the issues the right way. I think the challenge for Bloomberg is, and this is something I couldn't do in my book. I was too scared because it's it's a one shot when you run these experiments, is it's negative. Everyone knows stop and frisk was terrible. Everyone can see the data. We've all been talking about it. You stop blacks blacks and Latinx and Muslims at nine, nine, ten times the natural rate and you found nothing on them. Right. Nothing on, they weren't even, you criminalized them. And you've made them into criminals. They didn't even they didn't even do anything. But when you were stopping white people time after time, contraband. Yes. But they just weren't being stopped at that rate. So you have so you have a choice. And I don't know who's advising him, but these half whatever apologies, I wanna know that you understand what you did to black and brown young men that look like my family members through the course of your 12-year mayoral term because you hustled an extra term out of the city of New York. Yeah. Tell me what you think that did to that community. Do you think they like police officers? Absolutely not. Is there anything that can be done? We're done. We're done. Right? There's. I don't know how you go back from that. From and, twelve and what years that of does, right? And what that does to a community? Yeah, it's not twelve years. Yeah, he was there twelve years, but the impact. Yeah, of that, it's still today. Yeah, it's still, still today. Yeah, and De Blasio says I have worked my my eight my two terms to try to undo that feeling. So if you want to win me over, let me know you actually know that. Let me know that you actually understand that your policy that was terrible to begin with, that you understand the rippling effect that it has created in our community. And right. why has, we, Bill, has Bill Clinton been able to do that for you when he said he was sorry for no, the crime bill? No. No? Uh-uh. Yeah. It's just not. It just it needs to be genuine. I don't know. And it felt like the timing, right? And I mean, maybe that's fair too. Maybe Bloomberg apologized today. We all said, oh, he's trying, he trying to get our vote. Just trying to get Because that's the one thing to keep in mind. There's no path for the Democratic nominee to win without black support. He will not, he or she will not win. Right. She she will not win. He or she, right? There's just yeah. no path for it. So what's if you can't appeal. What's the name of the book? What's the name of the book that dives into uh, the, the Latin vote and endorsements with black people? Listen, I feel so embarrassed, but I always forget the name of my book. Um, Racial Coalition Building in Local Elections. That's it. Co-ethnic That's it. cues, something else. But- if you just, How do I, we find it? How do we find it? If we just put in your name, Dr. You, Andrea Benjamin? If you put in Andrea Benjamin and Racial Coalition Building, it should come to the top. My website is andreabenjaminphd.com, and there's information there. Um, but yeah, you could probably just Google me, which right. I guess sounds so, so pretentious. So uh, one last question. Sure. Uh, your opinion. You're, 
you're an a, an Oklahoman. Mm-hmm. You're an Okie for now. Mm-hmm. You're you've, you. Hopefully, we can keep you here for a long, 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 long time because I can see the benefit that you're offering just in your research and your conversation and the teaching of our of our young people. But so far that you've been here, what's your opinion of race relations in Oklahoma? Well, I think the thing that surprised me most. So, you know, you know, before I thought about moving here, I'm be honest with you, I hadn't given that much thought to Oklahoma, just generally. I have some friends who are from here, maybe thought about it in that way. Um, but now to, to, to be here and to really understand the rich history and the contributions of African-Americans in the state, it's been really, a, truly a joy to, to learn those things. Clara Looper, obviously the greatest legacy. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that our family members and the, those students are still alive is such a gift, right? That we can know them and we can see them and we can learn from them is so great. Um, but the state is really more diverse than I think in my mind, right? So we have the native populations, obviously in our city, um, right? We have black, we have Latinx, there's Asian population, right? So it's, it is more diverse than I probably gave it credit to in right. my mind. Um, but there is still sort of a Southern feel here, right? And so I tell people, it feels like I'm living in the North-South. So, the there's, North-South. <laughs> so there's still some Southern feel here, right? Yeah. Where I, I mean, people haven't been outright rude to me, um, but I don't know if they 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 want to like me, right? And so I've had a good experience. Is that a feeling? That's just the feeling you get when you go in different spaces, is that is that more because of your your uh, because you're a woman? Is it? It could be. Is it, it could be. But give it help. Tell um, us. Be frank with us. Okay. Here's the question that I've asked a lot of friends. This you're the perfect one to answer this because you're a teacher. Give us a letter grade on race relations. Semester's up. Got to got to turn in the grade. What where, where are we at? And it's not gonna hurt my feelings. Um, I'm probably gonna give it somewhere in the C range and I'll tell you why. Okay. And it's not even interpersonal things, right? It's structural things. Structural things. I think it's structural things, right? So Northwest side of Oklahoma City looks good. Things look good. Neighborhoods are nice. Lawns are trend. Things look good. We could see, I know the tax dollars that are being generated. Northeast side looking it's looking a little rough and I know who lives there. Right. And so what have we, right, if you think of city budgets as a reflection of our values, I know what we value here. Okay. Right. And so I think those things, right. So I know we're, we know we just passed maps four. I think that we're moving in a better direction, but I also don't want to see pure unmoderated gentrification come either. Right. The East side has a rich history. What can we do to make sure that, that black people can own homes in the city? Right. What does black home ownership look like? Given the size of the population, it doesn't need to be parity, but there's no reason why it shouldn't look like white homeownership, right? right? What can we do to get there? Um, what's the, you know, what's the development that's going on? Is it being done with the community involvement, right? Don't just come in and tell us what we want. Listen to us. Ask, what do we want? Work with us. Get the things that we want for our community, right? Um, it's not looking good that it's a food desert. And I know our representative, um, Council Member Nice, is working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just read this morning, I know uh, Representative Pittman put through the EBT bill so that uh, the SNAP benefits bill that we can um, use that to order food to, to sort of alleviate the food desert. Right. But why right. is there a food desert when I can just go three miles and I have Trader Joe's and Whole Foods right in my walking distance? That's not in my, you know, it's not in my area if right. I live on the east side. Right. So those are the things, right? The school stuff, right? These are all reflections. It's all of, structural. So, because that's a reflection of our values, mm-hmm. right? And so the interpersonal people have been nice, but if I were to grade sort of these outcomes, and I'm cities are having a hard time, right? So it's not even just unique to Oklahoma City, but those are sort of the cues that let me know, okay, right? And again, I'm coming from Durham. We have challenges, but black uh, home ownership is pretty high there, right? So it looks a little bit better, although it's there's challenges that are happening now because so, things are so we have, expensive. We, so you give us a C. Do you, does it look like we're in study hall? Are we moving in the right direction? I think so. I mean, I, I think the mayor um, has some. I think he. I think he is a good listener, from what I've observed of him. I think okay. he's in the community to listen. Yep. Other people wish he was probably there more. So I'm not gonna. I, I'm not there yet. Um, and I think the councilwoman is a good listener, right? So we're trying to figure out what we can do. And again, I think Maps Four is a strong signal that we care about things and we care about things being good it's very for all people of our oriented. cities. Very yeah, people very, oriented. Yeah. It is it is a unique way of doing participatory budgeting, which is essentially what it is. Most cities do it project by project, and the fact that in Oklahoma City we say do all of our projects or none of our projects is really powerful. Um, so I think those things are good, um, but 
which projects are going to get funded first, which I guess is what the committee is going to decide. And right. my hope is that we move. So I feel like, Doc, we can take this conversation to almost any one of the conversations that we have on this podcast. So I want to uh, want you to clear your schedule for United Voice because okay. I feel like I want you to come back and kind of engage okay. with some of our other guests. We have some powerful guests coming up. Uh, how, and you, you told us how to get in touch with you. Yep, you can. Well, my Twitter is Prof Benjamin at Prof Benjamin, and then my emails um, Andrea.Benjamin at OU.edu, and then you can also just look up anything I'm doing. I'll probably post a link to this podcast whenever we <laughs> right, have it right. um, on my news page. But um, my website is AndreaBenjaminPhD.com. Right, and so thank you so much for your your service at the University of Oklahoma and. I've so enjoyed. We've only got to sit in on one long board meeting together, but uh, I knew instantly after talking to you that you had a wealth of information that we need to share with, not just for me and for my edification, but for the edification of everyone around the state. And and I'm you haven't failed me. You Thank have, you. You're just, Thanks uh, for having me. This was wonderful. Very good. So I appreciate it. That's it for today, folks. Uh, we are uh, so happy that you joined us again. You got to like this episode. You got to share it. You got to reshare it. You got to comment on it. You got to let us know what you think about uh, some of the previous episodes. Go back and check those out. Again, keep our prayers for CC Jones Davis as she is recovering from surgery, uh, but she'll be back with us soon. So that's t- today. That's it. Thanks for joining us here on the United Voice Oklahoma podcast. I'm Wayland Cuban, and as always, we seek the common ground for the common good. Until next time, we'll see you later. Thank you for listening to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you like what you heard, please take time to leave us a review and share it with your friends and family. It really does help us to get these conversations out to more people. This podcast is a production of United Voice Oklahoma, one of the initiatives of the Stronger Together movement, and is produced by OKC Good and Reese Black. For more stories promoting a healthy relationship on race in Oklahoma, follow United Voice Oklahoma on Facebook or visit unitedvoiceok.org.